0: Amen. Thank you. And please be seated. Thank you for that uh, major chord resolution. As we do find that this uh, psalm has been sung by the exiles being oppressed by the nations who are being lied about and humiliated. And yet there is a resolution in this chapter. There is a great turn and good news right from the beginning. So we come now to Ezra chapter 5. And I think I put here in the bulletin, Good Reasons Not to Fear. Uh, Later I retitled my sermon to myself here anyway, How to Be Encouraged. So let's read it in that light. Uh, You remember the work of the temple has ceased at the point of the sword. And we pick up now 16 years later in the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, which sorry, is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tetenai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shetar there and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that to Ten I sent, the governor of the region beyond the river and Shethar Banznai and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him, In which was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace, let it be known to the king that we went into the province province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed, but because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath. He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and the silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given... "...to one named Shesh-bazar, whom he had made governor." And he said to him, these, uh, "...take these articles, go, carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site." This, the same Shesh-bazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even t- until now, it has not; it has been under construction, and it is not finished." Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. Amen. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we uh, meet again, the courage of your people who uh, risk their lives to do your will contrary to the law that had been decreed in a previous time. So we are challenged in our own time because we also are eager to work within the limits of law, and yet we feel that we also are too often uh, discouraged by the apparent threats of your enemies and ours, and pray that we also would uh, be able to hear the word of the Lord through the prophets and to resume our work as we ought, that the church as a whole, not only in America but in other lands where it faces official opposition, may see the wisdom that you have ordained and that you truly are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, having appointed one who is our mediator and the Messiah over all the earth to be the ruler over the kings of the earth, and in him we have made our prayer this night. Amen. Well, when we last left our hero, we remember the story as it has unfolded so far. Cyrus, king of Persia, conquered Babylon in 539 BC. And you remember, as referenced here, as soon as he did, Cyrus said to the Jews, look, I'm sending you back. God told me to send you back to your land, to Jerusalem, to build you a house, and I'm going to pay for the whole thing out of my treasury. And here are all the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple. Go on up and build. So over 40,000 Jews left Babylon with all they could carry, all their livestock that they could bring, traveling some 800 miles with their families, most of them on foot, to return to a desolated land, now occupied by people who were not at all happy to see them. So not a warm welcome. They set up camp. They cleared off the rubble where Solomon's temple had been. And within a month, they had rebuilt the off- altar and resumed the sacrifices. Soon they would be laying the foundation of the temple. Now the Samaritans offered to help them build, we saw last week, because they said, hey, we worship your God too. No way. The leaders replied, "God and Cyrus have told us to do this, So the Samaritans viciously turned against the Jews and then did all that they could to discourage them, lie about them, and trouble them. Well, as we saw last week god 's people went right on. They were mocked, they were lied about, they were humiliated, they went on with the work, but eventually, their enemies wrote a letter to the King of Persia previous and said that uh, Jerusalem has a long history of being a rebellious and evil city, as you can verify in your own library, O king. And that much was true. And therefore, O king, if you let them rebuild, they're going to rebel against you, and you're going to be sorry, and we're just trying to help. Hmm. Well, the king did check the history of Jerusalem, and he sent a reply, Hey, you're right, and you tell those Jews to stop building until you hear otherwise from me. Delighted. A bunch of armed men gathered together, going up to Jerusalem, king's letter in hand. And with the point of the sword, they said, stop. So the people stopped, greatly discouraged. And this is where we pick up the story uh, as the chapter turns now. You see, uh, even though uh, there's just that brief reference of another king, it had been 16 years. One thing after another, as I'll explain. They waited, not knowing what else they could do. They they couldn't do any more work in the temple, so they they went and built their own farms. They farms. They they farmed the land, uh, and yet even this wasn't working. They. Uh, They had returned to their land to find the rain was scarce year after year. The harvests were meager. They could never get ahead. Was God with them or not? It seemed that the harder they were working, the more behind they got. There they were living hand to mouth as strangers in their own land, surrounded by hostile and ungodly cultures, and their political and economic situation had gotten worse by the year. This faithful remnant of God's people—men, women, and children—who had ventured all to make this enormous uh, I don't know, sacrifice for God's cause, giving up their, their land and going back as pilgrims to a land that was desolated by the war some years earlier—now, now what? Where's God? Where are the promises of God? You now you read those earlier prophets, and, and, and you would have expected that when those people got back from exile, that God would rain blessings from heaven, and that they would immediately be, be able to see worldwide blessings starting in Israel. I mean, don't you get that impression? This had not been the case. Life was hard. God had not blessed them. They had sown much and harvested little. On and on for 16 years, longer than some of your lives. It was not the glorious return from exile that they expected and longed to see. There was now every reason, it seemed, rather for discouragement. Well, although we live in a very different uh, situation obviously in modern America, we can appreciate something I think of their discouragement of the times, right? I mean, we too have longed to see so much more. I mean, we know that the gospel is going to go from all to all nations. We've read the same prophets they have. We know that the Lord will build his church, the gates of hell not prevailing. But yet the reality day to day is that the church is not in the great condition. It is in a time, at least in our day and world, of a spiritual, nu- numerical decline in the West. We long for so much more, and uh, it, can, it can be discouraging, can't it? We can, we can lose our eagerness, longing for more. We can lose our initial excitement as well. Many Christians began their walk of God with, with, with joy and with expectation, and yet Some 16 years later, perhaps, their initial enthusiasm, they find, has worn thin. Slow progress can discourage us. We hope to see a change in ourselves in the world. We we, we long to see blessings, the, the blessings of the new covenant, which, again, seem so wonderful. And yet, the work of the Lord doesn't move as quickly as we had expected or hoped, even in ourselves. Pressure from the world can discourage us. Whenever you try to do God's work, you know that Satan stirs up opposition. No good thing is going to go unopposed. We're in a battle with great forces of darkness, which takes a toll. And criticism and pessimism from God's own people can discourage us. We saw that back in chapter 3 as they laid the temple's foundation. Joy mixed with weeping. The young people who never saw the former temple were rejoicing that the foundation had been laid, and the old-timers who saw the glory of Solomon's temple wept at this pathetic attempt to bring back the good old days. Perhaps, perhaps we also are ready for opposition from the outside, and yet we find it so discouraging when we find criticism and pessimism from our own. Pressure from the world can discourage us Pessimism among God's people can discourage us. We can lose our initial excitement. We long to see so much more. We, too, can find ourselves discouraged. So my sermon, as I've rewritten the title, is How to Be Encouraged. And uh, uh, this sort of, I think, assumes that you're, you're going to read the prophets along with it. And I realize we haven't read those prophets today so, wh- what was it that happened in those first few verses? We just kind of read it over real quick. Uh, who was it again? It was Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido. Uh They prophesy to the Jews. And immediately, uh, this, this discouraged people get going, right? They, they hop to, and uh, they, they realize, what, what are we doing? We... we uh, we have every reason not only to be encouraged, but to labor for the Lord and uh, let him sort it out, right? So what was it that they said? What were those reasons to be encouraged? I, I, uh, uh, most of the chapter taken up with this letter, which will be resolved next week. So I'll be concentrating on this first part of the letter. What was it that Haggai and Zechariah said? I, I'm just going to survey for you Zechariah's three prophecies, real quick, and Zachari- excuse me, Haggai's three prophecies and an overview of Zechariah uh, to give you the message that God gave them to explain why they and we, should be encouraged when we meet the same struggles, all right? That's our goal for this evening, that we should hear the same thing that they heard, and take heart, and serve the Lord. Okay, so number one, Haggai's first prophecy. These, first, these exiles, again, um, why doesn't God do something? Well, so he does. It was September the 21st, 520 BC, 16 years after they had stopped building the temple by decree from the emperor at the point of the sword. 16 years later, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Haggai. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew. Therefore, the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and on the new wine and on the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. First prophecy. God asked him, you know, in all all this time, did you ever stop to think why you're having such trouble at work and making ends meet? Did you ever stop to think why you're working so hard to provide for your house and you can never seem to get ahead? I'll tell you why. I did it. Uh, You've been neglecting your number one priority. Consider your ways. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added to you. You know, God doesn't need men to build a temple. In a split second, he could have spoken, and stones would have leapt off the mountains and built the most awesome, majestic temple you could possibly imagine. God isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything, Acts 17.25. No, God wanted his people to learn his ways and to realize, in the face of all this opposition, well, look, what what are they going to do? I mean, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our first desire. God wanted his people to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things would be added to them. They were the people of God. They had a job to do. They had a temple to build for God's pleasure, for God's glory. He, he wanted his people to learn that they need to be faithful in season and out of season. And he wanted them to gain courage and overcome their fears and their foes. We find that it's just too easy for us to lose heart. It's too easy. You know, on October 29th, 1941, Sir Winston Churchill spoke to the young man at Harrow School. It was the darkest hour of the war. Things were not going well at all for Britain, but this is what he said. He said, these are not dark days. These... Our great days, the greatest days our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. Rise up, he was saying to his fellow countrymen. The spirit of courage and this people must be raised as we press on to a great victory. Well, Haggai did something like this for the returning exiles, calling for them to shake off their cowardly fears and to serve the Lord with boldness and gladness. His eye will be on them. Don't worry. They heard the word of the Lord that day. And it must have come as a revelation to them. I mean, God didn't want us to stop. God wanted us to press on and take heart. I mean, the king said, stop. But the king of kings said, go. And who are we listening to? They got back to work immediately. In fact, later that same day, the word of the Lord came again to Haggai with this very simple word, same day. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So, they went to work and they sent their own letter to the king of Persia. A humble letter uh, that... Uh, Making a, a, a pointing out that Cyrus had made a decree to build the Lord's house. And, you know, law of the Medes and Persians, Persians doesn't change, so so they're doing it. I mean, we, we laid the foundation. It's been under construction since then. I mean, that's true in a sense, right? Uh, interesting, though, you know, when you're committed, you can find a way to serve God. Look, let's just start. Start back and uh, write a letter to the king and let the Lord sort it out. So... They, uh, they meet this opposition, but you see the strong testimony that they give then. Uh, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Look, we are God's servants. And, and an overview of their history, look, God has punished us for our sins, but we've been restored by God's grace, and, and we're doing this work. <laughs> so they do it. They bear witness to their enemies without fear. In verse 5, the eye of their God was watching over the elders. God was keeping them safe, in other words, so that they couldn't stop them. So they waited for this letter to come back from the emperor. Now, as soon as they started the work, as I said, the people from other nations were furious. They made threats. Hey, let me have the names of those leaders, right? We'll see what the king does with you men. Well... Good news will come next week. But I turn now to Haggai's second prophecy. Because before that came, four weeks later, on October the 17th, 520 BC, the word of the Lord again comes to Haggai. Who's left among you? Who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing. Yet be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all of you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Once more, it is a little while, and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. Okay. I will fill the temple with greater glory, a, a prophecy that must have puzzled the people for centuries until, of course, the day that Jesus was presented in that temple And Simeon then prophesied by the Spirit of God, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The glory had come. The desire of all nations had come to the house. Our peace came in that very place. You see, the God of hosts is with us. Who can be against us? So uh, so often we see year after year of discouragement, of, of trouble, uh, the very troubles and setbacks that we lament. They, they turn out, nevertheless, to be the very platform on which God's glory is going to be revealed. So It happens uh, time and again in the Bible. Happens time and again in church history. Just give you an example. Some of you know the name John Gifford. We from Sunday school. Hmm? Does that ring a bell at all? He was a major in the Royalist army during the Civil War, the middle 17th century in Britain uh, against Cromwell. Um, He was not only by oath of allegiance uh, bound to support the king as head of the church. Against the Puritans' effort to restore the Reformed faith in England, he was also personally opposed to the Puritan uh, advances. He had absolutely no interest himself in a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Gifford was a man who was dead inside. He was not a particularly attractive man either, as people said, and most of the people that he knew did not like him. Okay, so there's a picture for you. Well, uh, one day, in the providence of God, this uh, uh, leader in the royal army was captured by Cromwell's forces, and Major John Gifford was sent to the stockade. Now, one problem that the Puritans had was well, being the Christians that they were, they tended to be very kindly and thoughtful even to their enemies. Well, they allowed Gifford's sister to visit him in jail. And do you know the story? Gifford escaped the prison wearing her clothes and she remained behind in his clothes. And, oh, it was a grief. They thought it was a real setback. Here now, they had captured this leading, formidable foe, of the Puritan-aligned army and what was to become of those people in the field and the Puritan cause in England and God's glory and and, and so forth, right? But then uh, John John Gifford on the Lamb, he made his way to Bedford, where he practiced his trade as a physician and tried to fit in And in that town, well, his life went from bad to worse. He drank, he gambled considerably. Uh, Pretty soon he'd lost everything that he possessed. And uh, finally, on one particularly unfortunate night, after a series of gambling losses that had reduced him to nothing and the drinking that had so overtaken his life, Gifford was ready to commit suicide. But then, by a strange providence of God, at that moment, a book fell into his hand. And by some inner constraint he didn't know, he began to read it. And by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, Gifford was utterly, utterly changed. He was so changed that in a matter of a few months, Gifford was not only a new man, but became the minister preaching at the Independent Presbyterian Church there in Bedford in England. And it is this John Gifford, or the Holy Mr. John Gifford, as Bunyan calls him, and grace abounding to the chief of sinners. This John Gifford is the man on whom Bunyan based his character. Anyone know? Evangelist. In other words, this formidable foe of the Puritan army, the man whose release uh, or escape had, had caused the people of God to despair. This was the man who helped Bunyan find the Savior. Mr. Gifford's doctrine did help me much, by the way, he says. It was through this Gifford that the church was blessed to have one of its celebrated writers, John Bunyan. And so, what was thought to be the defeat of uh, a defeat in the Puritan struggle became, in fact, one of God's great and wonderful victories. Why do I say this? That, that we too need to have courage and overcome. We, we see the opposition. We see the darkness and the gathering storm. We, we see the power of our foes, and we recoil back. And uh, Haggai, like, uh, uh, like uh, Sir Winston Churchill, uh, Haggai says to God's trembling people, look, this is going to be a great victory in the earth. I'm going to shake the nations. I am going to bring the desire of all nations to Jerusalem. I am going to grant peace have courage on this platform of darkness and despair I am going to win one of my most signal victories that is the meaning of his second prophecy third prophecy another half a year later uh, just before the good news by the way comes back from the emperor Not not to ruin the story but here Haggai has one more prophecy for the people. December 18th, 520 BC, the word of the Lord again comes to Haggai. I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, says the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. What means this? For you might know it was not Zerubbabel himself that overthrew the Gentile kingdoms and their strength but it was Zerubbabel's great-great-grandson, Jesus. Just like we read earlier, God said to Jacob, hey, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. He means your, your, your offspring. So Zerubbabel's great-great-grandson, page one of the New Testament, Jesus. The Lord is saying to Zerubbabel, as he says to us, these great kingdoms of the earth and all their might will not be able to withstand the advance of the kingdom of the Son of my love. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord knows His people are liable to be discouraged. Time and again, He prophesies their doom, the doom of their enemies. He reassures us of His power and promise. He is with us to the end of the age. He will not leave us or forsake us. Our labor is not in vain. Great, great, great and terrible things are going to be happening in the earth and our eyes will see them. Well, this is the meaning of his third prophecy. Are you encouraged yet? Isn't this good news? Doesn't this lift your eyes to the great and mighty God? And apart from all the the, the discouragements that could be stacked up, we considered last time. Haggai, we read, was joined by the prophet Zechariah, who also encouraged the people with his apocalyptic visions, with his poetic symbolism, with his otherworldly scenes. And by the way... uh, before I begin point four, I just mention sometimes when I used to get really down and discouraged, I'd, I'd put the revelation in the tape player in my car, just listen to revelation. You say, what in the world? Uh, I didn't understand everything, but, but this I knew, great and terrible things going on in the earth, and Jesus wins. Okay, that was enough. Okay, so put things, put everything in perspective for me, you know, and I, and I, and I would recover myself. Now, Zechariah is like the revelation, it's been called the revelation of the Old Testament. Do I understand it all? No. Will I be able to explain it all today, even if I had time to do so? Absolutely not. Um, uh, Revelation itself uses the symbols and imagery from the book of Zechariah at great length, second only to Ezekiel. But, but, here are some things that the exile heard from those dark oracles which were very, very clear. Reasons for encouragement. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, the Gospels quote from Zechariah more than any other book of the Old Testament concerning the Lord's passion, save only the Psalms. They will look upon me, says the Lord, whom they have pierced. Um, He uh, has more and more references to Christ uh, that I can give you tonight. The New Testament alludes to Zechariah 41 times. The book may be dark, but Christ shines forth again and again brightly. Behold the man whose name is the branch, and from his place he shall branch out, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So shall he be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Here, the message was plain enough. Look, God has a great plan. You build, and not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Look to me and be encouraged. Who has despised the day of small things, he asked. So the point is the people heard Haggai's simple, plain, down-to-earth messages, and they, they, they heard the soaring, apocalyptic, visionary sermons of Isaiah as he gave sayings of the things to come, sometimes wondering just what exactly all these things meant. But some things were clear. God had big, big purposes in the world yet to be fulfilled. Great and terrible things, the nations coming to God and the nations turning against God. But no matter what, They and we are called to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. God will do his work his Messiah. Okay, these are the reasons to be encouraged. So they said, back to work. Let's get going and let the king of heaven sort it out. Okay, so in conclusion, let me say this. Often to overcome discouragement, we need a fresh encounter with God's Word. We no longer have prophets, but we do have their testimony, and they being dead still still speak. We, we might have thought uh, so much more was going to happen like they did. We, we, we should have done it this way. We should have done it that way. Well, the, the book says, look, there are things that we don't know, but this we know. God is working all things out for our good. He is a powerful, wise, and loving Heavenly Father. We can face all the trials of this life and our enemies now and in the future. There are going to be evil things coming, heartbreaking things, frustrating and disappointing things. Nevertheless, God has great purposes to fulfill in His holy temple, the temple that Zerubbabel was going to build. Destroy this temple, and I'm going to raise it up again in three days, says the Lord. He is going to build a temple greater still for you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Are you not? Are you not edifying this house even at the moment? So why should you be downhearted when God knows that there are troubles on every hand? But what is our hope? He is with us. His eye is upon us. We are called to seek first his kingdom, knowing that he's going to take care of the rest. The kingdoms of the world are being shaken. What do you expect to happen in the news? The things that cannot be shaken are going to remain. And this is our hope. This is our reason for encouragement because the same word is still true. His, his eye is upon us. His power is with us. His purposes are sure. Let us be concluding then with the words of Hebrews 12, applying the prophecy to the church. As the Lord says, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more, writes Hebrews, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we, Are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, let us pray. Great King, Lord of heaven and earth, our Father, we have seen the Lord seated upon his throne, high above all rulers. We have seen our Lord Jesus Christ upholding all things by the word of His power, our rock of ages. Though we have many trials without, fears within, we have great confidence that forever Christ is our hiding place and our shield, and that His kingdom shall have no end. It is He who rules the nations to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, and He is pleased to shake them as He will. We do not to know what to make of all these shakings of the purposes that you have in bringing these great and terrible events to pass in the world. But we have known that you are good and that your purposes in the world are good. Refresh our hearts. Encourage us by your words that we may be strong and not fear, that you may be glorified in us, your people, your holy temple, as we also are yours.